Hello everyone, my name is JB with NBW Ministries, uh, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my studio beneath the sky, nestled in the tall timbers of Colorado. Thank you for joining us. It is Monday, July 31st, 2023, and uh, this is the fourth episode of Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions. Thank you so much for uh, sending in your questions by email. You can do that at notbyworks.org. Uh, just click on the Contact Us button on the left side of the menu there. I think it's under About. Uh, or the Highlight Carousel has a specific banner set up for this uh, series that we're doing on answering your questions. You can click on that and it'll open your email browser and let you send us a question. I encourage you to keep the questions short and succinct. Um, Obviously, the, the goal of doing this is to kind of uh, get as many questions answered as possible without having uh, to spend an inordinate amount of time on my part uh, typing out answers and reading through long uh, discussions and back and forth and things like that. So uh, most of you are pretty good about that, but sometimes I get a really long email uh, that says, uh, so in conclusion, my question is, well, uh, do me a favor, start with that and uh, give me the question, bottom line it for me and I will uh, do my best to answer it. Uh, obviously, I want to be clear that I don't claim to have all the answers. In fact, we get a, a fair number of email questions that I respond to by email and say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not familiar with this, I've not studied this, I'm not the best one to answer this, that kind of thing. Uh, so please don't think for a second that I'm uh, setting myself up as uh, sort of the, the know-it-all uh, expert here that can answer any question. That's by no means the case. But I'm just trying to give you my perspective. Um, obviously, the biblical and theological questions are are pretty uh, you know easy for me in that sense. I, I love the Word of God, and I love to go to the Word of God and give you my understanding of those passages. Uh, the you know current events questions and conspiracy-type questions, I love those as well, but those I might be a little more tentative in my answers, and you'll hear both of them on this uh, series, Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions. But uh, this is the fourth episode. Uh, before I dive in, uh, I want to just quickly mention uh, we've got a great week ahead. Um, it actually started yesterday with our message from the book of Nehemiah at Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, I encourage you to check that out. Sometimes we are our own worst enemy from Nehemiah chapter 5. And a uh, great uh, day in the Lord yesterday at Plum Creek. We had uh, just a packed house again, our second service. We had some parking issues already uh, outgrowing uh, the two services a little bit, at least in the second service. Um, but uh, you can always live stream us uh, or, or listen to or watch the video in arrears after we post it uh, typically by midday on uh, on Sundays. So if you haven't listened to that message yet or watched the video, go back and check that out as we talked about being our own worst enemy. Uh, tomorrow, I've got uh, David Fiorazzo, formerly of Stand Up for the Truth, on the program. Uh, can't wait to talk to David. He's always got some great insights on current events and what's going on in the world. Uh, he's going to be launching his own podcast starting in September, and we'll say more about that uh, when we have him on the program uh, tomorrow. And then, of course, tomorrow night, is Prophecy Night at Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, looking forward to that. We have uh, fixed our audio problem from the last couple of weeks. I apologize for that. I know we, it seems like we are constantly talking about audio problems. Uh, we have no problems in the studio here uh, at Not By Works Ministries, but for some reason at Plum Creek Chapel, we just, uh, over the last couple of years, have just had these recurring issues. We thought we had it fixed, and uh, we didn't. Those are all fixed, as you can tell from the Sunday message yesterday. A nice 
crisp, clear audio, and uh, that will be the same thing, uh, Lord willing, unless we get in any more of those little uh, demons that like to get in there with the wires and mess things up, uh, Lord willing, we should have a clear audio tomorrow night for Prophecy Night as we continue to talk about why Bible prophecy matters now more than ever. Wednesday this week is our World Events Update with Randy. Thursday, I've got Leo Homan on the program. Man, I can't wait to talk to him too about some of his latest articles. He's always cutting edge. I get a lot of great information from his writings. I hope you do too. And then Friday, Lucas Doremus is back on to continue our discussion of the parables of the kingdom and what is this new information about the coming kingdom of our Lord that is presented by Jesus in these parables there in the Gospels. And then, of course, uh, Saturday, we're still doing our limited run series uh, with Randy on how to prepare. And this coming Saturday, August the 5th, we will be talking about how to prepare for an economic collapse. So that's on Saturday. So great lineup this week. Hope you'll check in with us. Uh, as always, if we can be of help, uh, feel free to reach out anytime. But let's dive into our uh, Q&A and uh, try to get through as many of these as I can. I want to start with a, a question that I thought was really uh, interesting. Uh, it shows that this person is really searching the scriptures and has some, some great questions here. So the question is, what role does Ishmael play in the grand scheme of things? A lot has been written about Ishmael from the, bibli you know, from the biblical perspective, but who was he? Uh, is he part of Arab history? Uh, this person goes on to say, you know, how does he fit into God's plan of the ages and the grand scheme of things, you might say? Um, and, uh, you know, were Ishmael and Isaac enemies? So again, great uh, question. So uh, the best way to, to kind of tackle that is just to, to point out that God, from the very beginning of creation, when mankind fell, promised that there would be a Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would save the world from their sin. In fact, the New Testament tells us Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's his whole purpose. And God alludes to this going all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when he confronted the serpent, Satan, in the garden after he attempted Adam and Eve. And he reminded him that one day the seed of the woman will destroy him. And that word seed in Hebrew is very unique because normally, and in fact in no other place, does it refer to the seed of a woman. Normally it refers to a seed of a man. Only the man has the seed. Uh, and uh, so he's referring here to the ultimate Christ child. In fact, in most English translations in Genesis 3.15, the word seed is capitalized as it should be, or at least in good English translations, it is. So that's what we, what uh, you know, uh, evangelists, or uh, I'm sorry, that's what uh, theologians call the uh, proto-evangelium. The proto-evangelium, proto meaning first evangelium, the Greek word for gospel or good news. So Genesis 3:15 is the first reference to the good news that would become clear as God unveiled Himself. Uh, through the written word over a period of 1,500 years. Uh, and that's how long it took to write the Bible. So God promises that there would be a seed from the woman, a human being, that we find out later is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who became man, put on human flesh, was fully human and fully God at the same time. And he's the only one then that could pay the penalty for the sins of mankind. But given that that's been God's plan all along... Satan 
uh, by, in response, has been trying to defeat that seed, that godly line. And so we have a competing enemy line, if you will, of people groups, ultimately nations, uh, and so forth, that are, uh, you know, that, that are trying to combat uh, Satan's or God's plan of the ages. And so what's really interesting is in the Bible, God repeatedly rejects the firstborn and accepts the secondborn. I mean, think about it. Go back to Adam and Eve. He rejected Cain, but chose Abel. And then he rejected Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn, and instead chose Isaac. He then turns around and bypasses Esau, which was Isaac's firstborn, and chooses Jacob. And then later, uh, Joseph, one of uh, Jacob's sons, uh, had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and God chose Ephraim and not Manasseh. Even in the Exodus, if you go to the book of Exodus and the children of Israel leaving Egypt, the Lord condemned all the firstborn, and that's not by accident, uh, and he spared only those who had been twice born. In essence, they had been covered by the blood. That's why they call it the Passover. And so God in throughout human history has preserved the godly line, if you will, that ultimately led to the Messiah through the, the second born, if you will. It just seems like that's God's way of doing things. And what's really interesting is theologically, when you get to the New Testament, especially in Romans 5, you see Paul talking about the first Adam and the second Adam, the first Adam being Adam himself, the historic human being, the first man, and then Christ is the second Adam. And so as Jesus told Nicodemus, that Jewish leader that he met by night, the leader came out to him by night, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was highly regarded. He didn't want people to see him asking questions of Jesus. Uh, it would be kind of embarrassing. He should know better, right? And so he came to Jesus by night, and he asked Jesus um, about uh, the kingdom. And Jesus basically says, unless you're born again, born from above, you can't see the kingdom. And so Jesus mentions there that there are two births. There's a physical birth, uh, and then there's a future second birth birth. And that second birth is spiritual. And so as I've often said, if you're born twice, you only have to die once physically. And the physical death for a believer, one who's been born again, who's a Christian, uh, is just the golden key that unlocks the riches of eternity. We need not fear death. Death is just a rite of passage. It's really in an instant, in a millisecond, we pass into the arms of our Savior. So death is no longer an enemy, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you're born twice, once physically and a second time by faith in Jesus Christ, born again, as Jesus calls it, then uh, you only have to die once. But if you're only born once physically and you never experience the second birth, then you're going to die twice. You'll die not only physically, but you will ultimately face the second death talked about in Revelation chapter 20, which awaits all those who've never received the free gift of eternal life. So back to the question, uh, it is significant that, uh, you know, God chose uh, Esau in Romans chapter, uh, I mean, chose uh, Jacob, by the way. In Romans chapter 9, uh, Paul says, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. And uh, he's, of course, quoting the Old Testament, uh, prophet Malachi. But, you know, Paul is making a point there that God is God, and, and he has his godly line and his plan of the ages. And even though there are other uh, people on earth who have tried to preempt that, 
human beings, uh, God's line uh, you know, leading to the Messiah himself will uh, prevail. So, yes, Ishmael is prophetically significant. Doesn't mean that everyone who traces their lineage back to Esau is part of, consciously, some type of plot, uh, but it just shows that, that God is sovereign and that he has uh, you know, his plan of the ages, and there are competing agendas to be sure. Uh, and then uh, the next question is, uh, if the Bible is to be taken literally, are we to believe that people actually lived hundreds of years, like Adam, for example, and Methuselah, uh, and Sarah, for heaven's sake, she was 90 when Isaac was born. How do you explain that? Well, very simply, first of all, not to sound, uh, you know, trite or dismissive or, you know, cute, uh, but, you know, I believe it because the Bible says it. And frankly, uh, the Bible is our only standard of our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. And, uh, you know, secular humanistic Darwinian uh, science has come along only really relatively recently in the last uh, few hundred years and tried to discredit the Bible. But uh, science is a believer's best friend because science actually confirms everything the Bible says. Not that we need it to because God's God, but it is kind of nice when we see validation there from uh, both the historical record and the scientific record. But yes, early on when uh, man first fell, uh, depravity uh, had not had years and centuries and millennia to take root in uh, the bloodlines of mankind. And so uh, mankind was stronger, healthier, bigger. Uh, that's the reason a lot of the, you know, mysteries of the world that the average secular anthropologist looks at and says, you know, how in the world did this happen? You know, how in the world did they build the pyramids? And how in the world did they do this without modern technology and cranes and machines? Well, I'll tell you how they did it. They reached over and picked them up and stacked them on one another. I mean, they were nine feet tall in some cases and strong as an ox, and they weren't limited to some of the physical frailties that the depravity of man has caused over uh, the succeeding century. So yes, absolutely, mankind lived much longer, uh, and uh, then uh, you know his days were shortened uh, as time went on uh, after the flood, in particular. And then you see also, as the Bible comes full circle and into the kingdom age, when Christ comes back, establishes his earthly kingdom, and eventually destroys the old heaven and old earth and recreates it in sinless perfection. In other words, the Bible tells a grand narrative, if you understand it in its plain literal sense, that starts with pre-fall Eden, and then the fall happens. But if you go all the way forward to the end of the age, there's a new heaven and a new earth that is also perfect. And the Bible tells us as we get closer to that time when Christ is sitting on the throne that people will once again live longer, people on earth, that is. In fact, Isaiah the prophet tells us that during that future kingdom era, if a person dies at the age of 100, they will be considered an infant which is just a sort of a poetic way of describing the longevity of life. So thank you for those uh, questions. I hope that helps provide uh, some uh, clarity for you. And uh, let's move on to another uh, question from a listener here. Uh, let's see. Here's a question that is basically about a personal situation at a church. And this is a longer question, and I'm, I'm you know, thankful that the person reached out and, and shared a little bit about their backstory. But again, try to keep the questions a little shorter uh, if you can. But if there's ever something that we can help you with that you don't necessarily intend to be a question, you're just looking for some counsel, feel free to reach out. You can always call our 1-800 number. We can set up an appointment uh, and just chat a little bit. But 
Time is always a kind of a premium for me, so I can't guarantee how quickly we'll be able to do that, but love love to hear from you. But anyway, this person shares a little bit about their backstory and the issues that they're having with their pastor and some of the problems that they're having with uh, the preaching there and so forth. And it basically, the question is, you know, what should we do? Should we confront him? Should we take him to lunch and share our thoughts? And I would say absolutely. Most pastors that I know, the genuine you know, uh, pastors that love the Lord and have a good heart, they love to meet with their people. And if it's done in the right spirit and done in love, you can share your concerns and hopefully the pastor will uh, receive it. Um, and so, yeah, I wouldn't hesitate to just uh, you know, pray first, of course, and pray that the Lord will give you the words. Uh, nobody likes to be critiqued, and pastors especially can be tend to be defensive. I know I can. Uh, but I think if you approach them in the proper way, uh, you know, you can kind of get some resolution in some of your concerns, or at least find out what his, his real heart attitude is there. This next question is about Calvinism. Um, this uh, person says they're looking for a new church, but the only thing they can find in their area is, um, you know, Calvinist churches and the one church that they thought they had found that seems to be a great church turns out to be strongly Calvinist. Uh, is this a reason to leave? Well, I did do a podcast a few weeks ago uh, with my friend and colleague Mark Fantecchio on uh, non-negotiables when choosing a church. And as I mentioned then, and I'll repeat it here, I do believe that the gospel is what matters most. And if you're going to a Calvinist church that preaches in, in order to be saved, you must surrender, repent of all your sins, turn your life around, promise to be good, make a pledge of allegiance, put Christ on the throne of your life, make him Lord, uh, you know, all of these types of things, give him your life, give him your all, that kind of stuff. Uh, I think that's a reason to leave. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. All of those things I just rattled off are matters of discipleship or progressive sanctification. They are not conditions for becoming a Christian. The only condition for becoming a Christian is to receive the free gift of eternal life, and the only way you can do that is by faith. So it's faith alone and Christ alone. Calvinists redefine the meaning of faith to have three different aspects. Uh, this is all through their writings. I encourage you to check out my video series that's available by streaming or uh, actually, I don't think we have the DVDs anymore, so it's available by streaming uh, on what is Calvinism and is it uh, biblical, in which I repeatedly quote them in their own words, describing their definition of faith, which them their definition of faith, according to them, is you must uh, forsake all of your sins and promise to turn your life around and obey Christ. And, and really, that's what faith is. It's what they call fiducia, this willingness to surrender to his lordship and his obedience. That's why the Calvinist view of salvation is often called lordship salvation. Well, the Bible certainly teaches lordship, and we believe Christ is lord of all, no doubt about it. But there's nothing we can do to make a pledge or promise or bow down and make him lord that, that we can do that will then give us entrance into heaven. It's not based on what we do. It's what he did for us. We're simply the recipients of the free gift by faith. So faith is simply placing your trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. It's not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So uh, yeah, I, to me, honestly, if you're asking my opinion, I would say that uh, if a church is teaching a Calvinist view of the gospel, I would not uh, recommend that church. Uh, one of the first of uh, at least a couple of questions that I recall in previewing these uh, questions today about the digital currency. It seems like we get these a lot. And, uh, you know, this person says, um, 
you know, I know you said we shouldn't get the digital ID, um, but I don't see how I can get my Social Security check and other checks from my retirement account if they make you go digital. Um, but how can I, you know, I don't, I don't want to use the digital currency, but how can I pay my bills and so on and so forth? Um, I know that you said you may have to make some tough choices, but I don't know exactly what you meant by that. Well, let me try to spell it out for you again. Uh, I don't mean to be discouraging or disheartening or certainly don't want to scare anybody because fear is not of the Lord and we are uh, not to have a spirit of fear. We are to trust God. But in my opinion, Taking the digital ID and the you know related digital currency that's going to be connected to the digital ID is a non-starter. And if it gets to the point where they tell you you can't get your Social Security unless you do it, well, you may have to live without your Social Security. Uh, you wouldn't be the first person that has found themselves um, not having an income or not having resources that God has managed to provide for. He provided for an entire generation of Israelites in the wilderness, uh, and they didn't sign up for the digital ID either. They they just woke up and there was the what they needed to eat on the on the ground. And so, you know, God can do it. I know that that sounds, uh, you know, I don't I don't mean to sound you know cute there uh, because I know it's a major major deal. But my first advice would be first of all, don't worry about it. We're a long way from that. I believe I do believe they're going to roll it out, but I don't think they're going to literally you know, make a person do it uh, at gunpoint or they starve to death. I just, I don't see that happening, at least not in the next few months or, or so. I think we're a little bit ways off from that. But if it gets to that point, that's what I mean by you may have to make some hard choices. Uh, the decisions we make are not guaranteed to, you know, be pleasant ones or to be without consequences. They, they will have consequences. And, you know, many a people have uh, faced tough times because they stood on principle. So stand on principle, and let God uh, take care of your uh, of your uh, you know these other issues. Uh, the next question is about the Nelson Study Bible that I have often recommended. I know the general editor or knew him. He's with the Lord now, and several other of the editors on the Old and New Testament notes, and they pointed out that the Nelson Study Bible in the, their comments on Genesis chapter 1 and the creation account, uh, take the sort of the gap theory uh, approach. Um, well, I definitely don't agree with that, and I've commented about that before. Uh, a study Bible, it's worth noting, is not inspired. The notes are not inspired any more than anything I say is or anything I write is. Um, they're just the studied opinions of a scholarly uh, you know, people, theologians, that, that are trying to interpret the Scripture for you. So, um, obviously, you want to let the text speak for itself, and you want to do your own research. I reject the notion of a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 uh, for a variety of reasons, um, and we won't take the time to get into that now. Um, but uh, yeah, um, I, I would disagree with that, and, and several other, by the way, interpretations. You know, it's a lot of content in any study Bible or commentary or theology book, systematic theology book. We're not going to agree with everything, but I believe that God created the earth in six literal 24-hour days. Uh, you can't have millions of years of death and destruction, which is what the gap theory proposes, that you have an original creation during which the angels fell, uh, and in some cases, gap theorists claim that's when the dinosaurs were. And then, um, you know, at some point, God destroyed that, and then it was recreated and refashioned, if you will, into what we now uh, have. Uh, so, you know, some people would call this, uh, you know, old earth, but young humanity. 
So they believe in an old earth, but mankind is only 6,000 years old. My problem with that is, you know, Jesus indicates that from the beginning of time, God made man male and female. So the creation of mankind begins time, space, and matter. So I understand there's a lot of good scholars out there that take a different view. Uh, you Plenty of research out there for you to study it and come to your own conclusion. Uh, I don't have the, the time uh, in this context here on these uh, question and answer sessions to give an exhaustive defense of young earth literal six-day creationism, uh, but I wanted to just point out an answer to the question that yes, I would disagree with that conclusion of the Nelson Study Bible on that point. Uh, this uh, same uh, listener also asked about eternal security relative to uh, the, some passages in Hebrews. Let me take a moment to uh, address that. Uh, Hebrews, just to give you the context, and, and by the way, I've written about this and talked about it elsewhere. Uh, you can search our website uh, you know, for, for some of those resources. Um, by the way, we do offer premium content on our website. I, I almost never say anything about this, but we, we do get quite a few people that sign up for it. Uh, it's really inexpensive. It's $20 one-time fee, and we even give you, in response, a $20 coupon to use at the store on anything you want. So essentially, it's free. But if you do purchase the premium content access, you have access to my archives of my class notes from all the years that I taught, other old sermon notes, audio files, things like that that you can dig into at your uh, at your leisure. So you might consider that. But uh, the book of Hebrews was written in the late 60s AD by an anonymous author. Many people, myself included, think it was the Apostle Paul, but we can't be dogmatic about it. But the essence of it was he was warning Jewish believers against departing from the Christian faith. They were facing intense persecution under Nero. Some of them had already forsaken the assembling of themselves together, Hebrews 10.25. And so he, he repeatedly reminds them that Christianity and the Lord Jesus Christ who saved them are far better than anything that Judaism has to offer. So why would you want to go back to that old system? Uh, they were doing it, by the way, because Judaism was still protected within the Roman Empire and tyranny, uh, whereas Christianity was the target of their tyranny. So to disassociate with Christianity and kind of go back under the tent of Judaism uh, might save their lives. But the author here says, look, your life is, not, is, is nothing. Your home is in heaven, and uh, if you make the ultimate sacrifice, uh, you know, as I kind of said earlier, praise God, you're going to be in heaven. It's not, you know, death is just the golden key that unlocks the riches of eternity. So he challenges them repeatedly through the letter of Hebrews to hang on to the faith. Don't cast away your faith. And in the process, he uses five different so-called warning passages that present very stern warnings. And these, unfortunately, have been misunderstood by a lot of people uh, through the years as suggesting either A, you can lose your salvation if you don't heed these warnings, or in some cases, like the Calvinist view, they would say, well, you can't lose it, but if you, if you don't heed this warning, you never really had it. So either way, if you don't do these good works here, or you commit these, you know, terrible actions, then you, you're not going to heaven either way. Either you never had it or you lost it, one or the other. So, you know, in a sense, in essence, by the way, uh, Calvinism and, and Arminianism both paved the roads back to the Roman Catholic dogma of works-based salvation. Uh, but uh, Hebrews chapter 6 uh, basically uh, goes on to say, uh, let's see if I can call this up, uh, 
He says, uh, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit. So again, there's no question that he's talking to believers here. Um, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Remember, repentance just means a change of mind. Um, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Um, notice the active voice there. He says it's impossible to renew them again. It uh, doesn't mean it's impossible for them to be renewed. It just means that there are certain people who reach a point of no return where no amount of arguing and convincing and warning and, and, and cajoling is going to get them to change their mind. Only the Holy Spirit uh, can do that. And, uh, and indeed, he goes on to say that uh, using an analogy here about the earth, he says the earth that drinks in the rain uh, that often comes upon it and bears herbs, useful, for those by whom it's cultivated, that receives blessing from God. But if it bears briars and thorns, well, then it's not useful. It's rejected. And uh, they burn them up. They gather the old you know, leaves that are no longer useful, and they burn them up. That's the way you kind of cultivate sometimes. Well, a lot of people have assumed because he makes a reference there to being burned that he's talking about hell. But neither the, the, the cultivation, the rain, the briars, the thorns, none of that is literal. It's a metaphor. It's, a, it's an illustration. And basically what the writer here is saying is that believers who consciously and willfully turn away from the Lord uh, for whatever reason, pressures, you know, persecution, you name it, uh, they're no longer useful and they're no longer going to receive a blessing. They're kind of like crops that don't get rain. And uh, so they don't serve that use, that usefulness. So again, nothing in the context indicates that he's talking about losing your salvation or that you're going to go to hell. Uh, that's just a quick answer to that. I, I, I'm sure that those of you Bible scholars out there listening, especially academics, are going to, um, you know, say, oh, that's, you know, a terrible answer. Well, I, you know, I'm not trying to give a detailed peer-reviewed journal article here. I've done that elsewhere. I'm just trying to give people some information to, to give them a reasonable answer to this question. I got someone that emailed me after the last episode, episode three, that wasn't happy with the answer that I gave, and it was their question. And so they kind of followed up with more questions. I did my best to answer their questions, but uh, you know, this isn't really the forum for that type of dialogue. And and uh, one of the reasons that I left academia back in uh, 2012, uh, after some 12 years or so in the baccalaureate and graduate levels teaching and administration, is that I just got disenfranchised with all the uh, you know granular arguing and debating about things, and I wanted to get out there and just you know see people come to faith and share the gospel that urgent times needed an urgent answer and that's the same year that my book uh, the great last days deception uh, came out exposing satan's new world order agenda uh, so anyway uh, in rome in hebrews 10 we see the same uh another warning passage the same idea here it says um in Hebrews 10, beginning in verse, if I can get here, 26, if we sin willfully. So first of all, recognize that the writer of Scripture is including himself here. Clearly, he's saved, whoever he is, even if he's not Paul. So whatever the eventuality here that he's speaking of, he's including himself. So unless you think that the writer of Scripture would end up in hell, that, that, that sort of answers the question. 
But he says, if we sin willfully here, and he's talking in the context about, again, the decisive decision to cast away your confidence, which has great reward. He goes on to say in verse 35 of chapter 10, uh, then there's no longer a sacrifice for sins, um, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversary. So once again, you see the word fire and you think, oh, hell, that if you sin willfully after you've been saved, then you're still going to hell. Doesn't say that. Uh, fire is not always a reference to hell. In fact, there are plenty of references to fire for believers. For example, the beam of judgment will involve fire, the testing of our works. The Bible says God himself is a consuming fire, and that's also in uh, the book of Hebrews. So, yeah, the, the, the issue here is rewards, uh, not loss of salvation. And uh, it's a serious thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And those who make that conscious decision to turn their back on God for whatever reason need to recognize that they're going to face God's discipline. And that's why he concludes this section in Hebrews 10 with, Do not cast away your confidence because it has great reward. And that's the key. You have need of endurance. You have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you'll receive the promise. And again, that's not talking about heaven or hell is talking about the reward. Earlier in Hebrews, he uses the children of Israel as an example, who because they, because of their disbelief, their unbelief, they didn't get to receive the reward of entering the promised land. But that doesn't mean they went to hell. Moses, for heaven's sake, didn't get the reward of the promised land, but he's certainly in heaven today. So similarly, the promise and the promised land does not refer here to heaven, but it refers to a reward for those who hold steadfast to the faith. So hopefully that helps uh, a little bit as you try to connect the dots of those warning passages there uh, in, uh, in Hebrews. Um, here's a question uh, from a listener. Why did God create man knowing so many people would be eternally lost forever? Well, that's a, you know, the age-old question of sovereignty and free will, right? It's one of those uh, uh, biblical antinomies that we just have to accept because the Bible teaches both. But I can make, uh, you know, an effort here to at least give you some perspective. God created mankind with free will. Uh, any other kind of creation would have been meaningless. It would have been just, you know, a bunch of, you know, robotic automatons that had, you know, no blessing for the Lord. But he wanted something that would that would honor him, that would obey him, that would bless him, that could have fellow, meaningful fellowship with him. So as the Bible tells us in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, he created us in his image. And uh, that means we had volitional free will. So uh, God uh, you know, does not want anybody to go to hell. In fact, the Bible tells us he's not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. He wants everybody to change their mind and receive the free gift of eternal life by faith. Uh, but if you want to go to hell bad enough, he's not going to stop you. He's not going to force you into heaven any more than he forced you to sin. He didn't force Adam and Eve to sin. He gave them a choice. We chose to sin. Now he provided a remedy through the you know atoning work of Jesus Christ, God's Son and our Savior. And that remedy is available freely to all, whosoever will may come. But it's not forced upon you. We must choose to receive the gift. If you reject the gift, you don't have the gift. And uh, so, uh, you know, God does not want anybody to go to hell. But if you refuse his remedy, then you have nobody to blame but yourself if you end uh, up there. Uh, here's a question about Ezekiel 37, the dry bones passage, wonderful uh, passage of scripture. Uh, and 
they were commenting on something I had said in a recent Prophecy Night podcast, uh, and in which I suggested that the return to Israel in the land in 1948, or the reestablishment of Israel as a nation, is a better way to say that, uh, was not the fulfillment of prophecy per se, but it was clearly the setting of the stage uh, for prophecy to be fulfilled, because for Israel to be regathered into the land prophetically, as the Bible says they will be, in passages like Matthew 24, 31, or Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, or Isaiah 27, 13, several others. Just about every Old Testament prophet predicts that when the Messiah comes and takes the throne, Israel will be regathered into the land. Um, that, you know, there has to be a nation existing for them to be regathered to. So no question that May 15, 1948 was prophetically uh, significant. But the dry bones prophecy, I don't think is the beginning of the fulfillment of prophecy. I don't think 1948 began, you know, the starting of the fulfillment with Ezekiel 37. Some scholars do. I respect them. I've had conversations with some of my colleagues about this view. I won't mention their name because they may have changed their view. Um, But, uh, you know, people say, look, you know, the dry bones are rattling and they're starting to come back to life in 1948 and eventually they will. But I just don't see it that way. If you look at the context of Ezekiel, you know, chapter 36 is all about the new covenant blessings that won't come to pass until Christ takes the throne. That's clear enough because uh, those blessings are described in such a way that they can't possibly be in place today. You've got after chapter 37, the Gog and Magog battle. That certainly has not happened yet, and I don't believe that will happen until after the rapture. And then most importantly, you've got chapters 40 to 48, which are all about the kingdom. So these last chapters of Ezekiel are all you know, referencing that future time of glory for Israel when at long last they receive their king, believe in him, accept him as their king, and then he ushers in the long-awaited uh, kingdom. So I think uh, there's no indication textually that there's going to be a long period of time between each of the verses in Ezekiel 37, which you know some people say that oh it's it's gradually being fulfilled over time. I think it's just a beautiful metaphor to describe what happens when uh, Christ comes back. And then uh, we've got uh, the next question is uh, they sent a doctrinal statement that they. Uh, I guess it looks like took a picture of what their phone, so it must have been a printed doctrinal statement from a well-known ministry. I won't mention that ministry's name because I there's no reason to make an enemy here. Uh, but they are pointing out that the doctrinal statement doesn't seem to clearly state that we must believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. It simply says that the Holy Spirit regenerates us, and that's a great question. Very, uh, I think, uh, you know, insightful, uh, studious you know, listener here who's discerning and reading uh, with a critical eye doctrinal statements. But sadly, a lot of doctrinal statements when it comes to the doctrine of salvation will say what this one does, which let me read this portion. It simply says, we believe that for the salvation of the lost and sinful man, regeneration by the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential. That's almost like saying, well, if you want to drive a car, you've got to have gas. Well, that's certainly true, but I need to know a lot more than that if I want to drive this car, right? I need to know how to start it, where to sit, how the controls work. I need to know more information. And certainly when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, we need to know that 
the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself, came and lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, died on the cross to pay my personal penalty for sin, rose again the third day, that it's only by trusting in him and him alone that I can receive the gift of eternal life. There are many things that happen the moment we believe in Jesus unto eternal life. Uh, Lewis Berry Chafer in his Systematic Theology lists, I think it's 33, been a long time since I've thought about that, but in his uh, eight-volume set, he has a section in there where he lists all these things. Uh, but a lot happens at that moment, one of which is the regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Uh, also, uh, you know, being adopted into the family of God, being reconciled to a holy God, being declared righteous before a holy God, being positionally sanctified with God, uh, being uh, baptized by the Holy Spirit. There's a lot that happens at that moment. And this particular doctrinal statement under the doctrine of salvation simply singles out one of those. But uh, we need a lot more information to know where they really stand on the gospel because it really ought to say we believe that it's only by faith that a person can be saved and that faith must be in Jesus Christ and him alone. Um, here's a next question is uh, about millennials and other young people who are deconstructing their faith, abandoning their faith. Uh, boy, I've had two conversations just in the last 48 hours with people who are dealing with this with their young, uh, with their you know millennial age children, and it is heart wrenching. I get it, but they want to know uh, if they do this, what is their salvation status if they believed in Jesus as a child, but later on are abandoning their faith. Uh, and even becoming woke or progressive or even, in some cases, atheist. Wow, that's a tough question, and I'm so glad the Bible gives us a direct answer to this. We don't have to connect the dots theologically. We, this is not a difficult one. Uh, it's painful, and it's, it's really hard for most people to accept the answer I'm about to give you because we've been told so many times that our eternal destiny is based upon our behavior, and there's certain behavior that makes heaven off-limits. Uh, listen, the only condition for entering heaven is faith alone in Christ alone. And if you trust in Jesus Christ at whatever age, uh, it doesn't matter what happens after that. It's not going to affect what Jesus gave you the moment you believe the gospel. Jesus said, at that moment, you have passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. And you have to reconcile that with the, the sad reality that many people do abandon the faith. Now, there are a host of other passages that are relevant to this question. For example, 2 Timothy 2.12 reminds us that even if we are faithless, we abandon the faith, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. We're a child of God. So our eternal destiny is not contingent upon us believing the gospel and then continuing to believe it until we die. There's no asterisk behind, beside John 10, 28, where Jesus says, I give you eternal life, asterisk, but you got to keep on believing and walking with me and persevering and being good and living out your faith and walking in the spirit and going to church and so forth. And if you commit any of these sins and you, you end up with this lengthy footnote with a bunch of sub points in it, that people have created, whether they admit it or not, that says, if you do any of these things, you're not going to heaven. And of course, the Calvinist answer, because Calvinists don't believe you can lose your salvation, but the Calvinist answer is to say, well, you just never had it. They just easily, hastily dismiss a person's salvation because of their behavior. And so what people need to understand and what these millennials need to understand is, first of all, and the parents of these millennials, first of all, if your son or daughter is a believer, they're always a believer. If you're a Christian today, you'll be a Christian tomorrow. And our uh, you know, decision, tragic as it may be, to turn our backs on God doesn't undo that. 
Now, the millennials need to understand there's a serious consequence for that. You know, there is, you know, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And, and if you turn your back on God, he may just call you home and say, look, I'm not going to have you out there destroying my witness and my testimony. Um, or, you know, he may, in some cases, the, the long arm of God's mercy and grace is, you know, longer in, in some cases, and he may allow you to depart and backslide for a long time before he comes back. And that's the thing I, I try to encourage these parents with, is there are many stories of people who turn their back on the Lord, believers who turn their back on the Lord, and it might be 50, 60, 70 years I've heard in some cases of people who finally, uh, you know, the Spirit of God breaks through and they, and they uh, you know, realize that they've been sinning against the Holy God and they, they come back to the Lord. Uh, so there's no timetable. There's nothing that says if you depart from the Lord for this length of time, then you're going to hell. Uh, if you're a Christian today, you're a Christian tomorrow and you will be saved. So uh, this does not affect their salvation status, going back to the question of the listener. Um, again, I'm not suggesting that everybody who says they are a Christian really is. I think there are a lot of false professors out there who never believed in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. But assuming they did, uh, and by the way, I assume most children do, because contrary to what Calvinists teach, faith is not complicated. Faith is just the confidence or assurance in some truth. And if you believe Jesus died and rose again to save you from your sin, and you're saved. I mean, that, that's not that complicated. That's why Jesus you know, said, let the little children come to me. They get it. They understand faith. The gospel is so simple, a child can understand it easily. Adults mix it up, and they think that I've got to bring something to the table. I've got to do something. That I've got to redefine faith to include all of these little subpoints, and you know, it's partly something that I give to the Lord, but not at all. It's nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. Very simple. The simplest statement of the gospel in all the scriptures, John 6, 47, where Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. Do you believe in him? Do you believe that he's the only one who can save you from your sin and that he purchased your redemption with his own blood at the cross? He defeated death, hell, and the grave when he rose again the third day. And he offers freely to you and anyone else who's not already saved the gift of eternal life. So, tragic story and i my heart goes out to people who have uh, children who have uh, or any other relative or friend who's turned their back on the lord but thankfully our eternal destiny is not contingent upon us staying in right fellowship uh, with the lord uh, so here's a, a question from a listener who basically uh you know asks uh, some similar uh, question here let me see if i can get to the meat of it um Asking about a particular, uh, you know, Bible teacher, we won't address that one uh, here. Um, but they had a couple of questions. So first of all, they asked, "Will Jesus forgive me for not understanding most of the Bible?" Uh, absolutely. You need to understand forgiveness, like righteousness, in two senses. There's a positional, forensic sense, and we're all forgiven once for all the moment we trust Christ. Nothing can ever change that. When we stand before heaven someday, if you if you're a believer, if you trusted in Christ, it's you know you are forgiven, and the blood of Christ is going to cover you from all sins. Uh, but then on a practical level, as we live out our lives, if we sin and rebel against God and follow the flesh instead of the spirit. That breaks fellowship with God. We can never lose our family relationship with God. We're always part of the family, but we can lose fellowship. And if we break fellowship, then there's this confession, this agreeing with God uh, that we have sinned and, uh, and saying, you know, I, you know, I've sinned and I want to restore that fellowship with you. I was wrong. And that's, that's all about fellowship here on earth. Uh, and so absolutely, 
if you're not understanding the Bible, uh, the Lord Jesus uh, is not going to hold that against you. He's going to try through the indwelling spirit to help you understand it. Um, and uh, nothing is going to have any impact on your ultimate positional relationship with Christ in that regard. Um, uh, and then this question uh was interesting. Uh, in heaven, there will be neither male nor female. Uh, it doesn't really say that. It says they'll be neither, uh, you know, married nor given in marriage. Uh, but their question is, does the Bible mean that once believers get to heaven, they will all be the same sex? Well, sex or gender, by definition, is a human thing. It's a, related to the fleshly uh, body. Um, but uh, we will certainly have our identity, our human identity in heaven. And even though we won't have the same physical bodies, that identity involves male and female. That's how God created mankind. It's part of the image of God in man. So we don't lose our gender identity. And it's so amazing to me how in this age where Satan is just deceiving people right and left about gender, that they've got, you know, literally dozens upon dozens upon dozens of genders. And yet for those who take the extreme and horrific uh, decision and route to have gender uh, surgery, gender affirming surgery, when you go into the operating room, uh, you, the doctor really only gives you one or two choices. You know, which kind of physical uh, reproductive components would you like? Uh, there's not more than two. And so there are, are only two options, and we will still have our gender identity in heaven because it's part and parcel to our humanity and being in the image of God. But the physicality of that is what uh, we're not going to have there in heaven. Here's a question about the ESV, the uh, uh English Standard Version and how it has become so popular and they comment about how the NIV used to be the go-to Bible, now it's the ESV. Uh, I have spoken elsewhere about my concerns about that translation uh, decision and so they, uh, they had uh, a question about it. Uh, let me call up here the ESV and I'll give you an example, but you know they wanted some specifics. Uh, you know, my comment, you know, in the past and that they're referring back to is that particularly the ESV study notes are, are problematic um, because, uh, you know, they, uh, you know, they come from a Reformed or Calvinistic perspective. In fact, people sometimes tongue-in-cheek call it the elect uh, study Bible. Um, and sorry, I'm having a little problem here with my Software. Okay, so here's the ESV. Let me think of a good example. Uh, how about 1 John 3? Uh, 1 John 3, what's the verse? Uh, verse uh, uh, 4. 1 John 3, 4. So in the ESV, it says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning uh, uh, practices lawlessness. And then it goes on, actually, verse 6. This is an even better verse. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that's an example of a bad translation. Uh, the Bible doesn't say keep on sinning or continue to sin. Uh, it says sins, period. It's a present active, and you know, uh, indicative there in the Greek. Uh, and so the point that the author is making here, John, the apostle, is that as he says at the end of uh, chapter uh, 2 and, and then in, continues on uh, in chapter 3, is that 
Jesus, there's no sin in Jesus. And so when we sin, we're not abiding in Christ. You can't be sinning and claim to be in fellowship with Christ at the same time. Uh, to abide, the Greek word there is meno, it means to be in fellowship with. It's what Jesus told the disciples in the upper room that they should do. They need to stay close to him. Abide in me so you can bear much fruit. So the Apostle John is just reiterating what Jesus had told him some you know, 50, 60 years earlier in the upper room. And uh, so the whole argument makes no sense if you use the ESV translation there. But again, because they're Calvinists, they're going to say, if you keep on sinning, or if you continually sin, or if you habitually sin, you're not really a Christian. That's not what John says. John says, if you sin at all, you're not fellowshipping with Christ. It doesn't have anything to do with your eternal destiny. He's not questioning their salvation. In fact, he just begins the chapter with, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And he says, you know, we should purify ourselves just like he is pure. And so he says, uh, whoever sins, whoever abides in him does not sin. That's the way the New King James translates it. And that's a perfect translation of uh, the Greek word hamartano. Hamartano. It's a present, as I said, I'm just checking my own memory here. It's a present active indicative, as I said. So they translate does not sin as does not keep on sinning. As if there's some magical standard here that if you sin too much or sin for too long or spend too much time sinning, then somehow you're not a Christian. Well, I'm here to tell you there's no sin that a an unbeliever can commit that a believer might not also commit if he or she is catering to the flesh. And so, um, you know, this is a, a great question from this listener about the ESV. Hopefully that gives you one example, but there are many. Uh, you know, the Bible was not written in English, so as we translate the original Greek in the New Testament to English, we have sometimes to do our best to you know to uh, say in English what the Greek means, and the ESV just continually has this Calvinistic slant to it, and uh, I just don't think it's a good translation uh, for uh, today. So hopefully that helps answer the question. Uh, here's a question. Um, about, again, uh, EMPs. And we answered this one, um, I think, on our last Saturday, not two days ago, but two weeks ago, the first episode of, um, or the, yeah, actually three Saturdays ago now, the, the, civil, the uh, EMP, how to prepare for an EMP. We answered uh, this uh, question. Um, and I think we answered it again on uh, my discussion with Shane about the snowballing nature of artificial intelligence. But the question is, you know, how can we protect ourselves from an EMP? Uh, if we have an EMP, uh, if we have, you know, EMP damage, isn't that going to affect uh, our service? So even if we protect certain devices with a Faraday bag or a Faraday cage, aren't those devices going to be useless? Not exactly. And uh, I think uh, we had some good answers uh uh, to that question uh, from uh, my good friend Randy. Uh, first of all, it depends on the nature of the EMP. If it's a full-blown global or, I mean, national coast-to-coast -coast type EMP, yeah, most everything is going to be uh, destroyed. But if you have a radio that uses normal airwaves and not other digital technology, it's an old analog type device, then you can still use it. You can still, you know, listen uh, to the radio and use your, uh, uh, you know, your uh CB, or my brain is fried here <laughs> already uh, in, in thinking through some of these questions, but, uh, uh, you know, your your uh, person-to-person -person type radios. I have one. I'm sitting here uh, 
here looking at it, but those types of radio devices that use radio waves, those would still work. So there are a lot of devices that would still work. Your computer, for example, you may not be able to get on the internet if they fry the internet network, but you can still open your computer. So uh, there's still some value to protecting against an EMP. Uh, here's a question from someone uh, Let's see. The, thank you for your uh, diligent content and answers to questions. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I love what we're doing at NBW. So thanks for that encouragement. But uh, they ask, uh, is God is loving and, and if God is loving and omniscient, why would he really create people he knew ahead of time would send to hell? I think we had that question from someone else earlier and worded a little bit differently. But great question. Again, uh, I mentioned this a moment ago, so I won't belabor the point. Uh, God doesn't send anyone to hell. Uh, he makes it possible for everyone to not go to hell. Uh, whosoever will, let him come drink of the water of life freely. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so uh, God created people with free will uh, because that was a corollary to his uh, image and uh, the, the, the volitional decision, not sovereign not we're not sovereign in the sense of ultimate absolute sovereignty but we are sovereign over our own choices in that uh, sense and that's one of those antinomies uh, that God has given us free will yet he is uh, sovereign this next uh, person asks um, about a you know just some advice on how to start a home uh, cell group and they've been a part of a church that is kind of departed and and not really teaching the, full, the whole counsel of God. Uh, they don't teach about prophecy. They don't teach about preparedness. Uh, they have kind of gone woke in some regard. And so they're wanting to do something. They want to make a difference. And I applaud them for doing that. And they want to, you know, maybe invite some folks to their house. And, and uh, you know, how should they get started? And what types of materials would they uh, should they use? Well, there's no shortage of great material out there, great uh, uh, teachers uh, certainly at not by works we have some resources that we could recommend uh, a lot of my books uh, have study questions in the back uh, such as um, what lies ahead a biblical overview of the end times uh, I believe gospel uh, getting the gospel wrong has some study questions at the back if I'm not mistaken certainly uh, the gospel unplugged does great last days deception does uh, so you know those are some you know, resources that you can use in a home study group. Um, there are lots of churches like Plum Creek Chapel that live stream. You can use that. You can watch videos. We have a lot of great streaming videos at NBW Ministries, as do other uh, like-minded ministries. So I don't really, you know, I know you probably know all of that already, so I'm not really telling you anything you couldn't have already come up with on your own. But I would just say step out and do it. Don't worry about having all the details worked out. If God's calling you, to start a church with like-minded people, uh, you know, get after it, go, go for it. Um, and it only needs, you know, one couple at first, invite them over for dinner. Hey, come over. We want to show you a video. And, and, uh, and if you pick the right video, that'll hook them. And then you say, Hey, let's, let's, uh, uh, come again. You know, let's do this again next weekend or in a couple of weeks. And first thing you know, they'll say, well, hey, can we bring some friends? And you know, the Lord has a way of doing it. If the Lord's in it, He'll He'll develop it. And many a church has been started uh, simply with an unction, a burden, and then you just you know trust Him each step of the way and and, and let Him uh, let Him lead it. Um, 
So here's a question uh, about 1 John 1.9. I kind of addressed this when I was talking about the ESV Bible translation. This person says that they uh, have heard a teacher suggest that 1 John 1.9 was for the unsaved. It is not. This could not be more clear. I respectfully disagree with even some of my friends and colleagues who, for some reason, have kind of latched on to the uh, erroneous view about the book of 1 John, but 1 John makes it clear from the very beginning that he's writing to believers for the purpose of fellowship. He says, for example, in verse 3 of chapter 1, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. He does not say these things we write to you that you may know how to get saved or that you may make sure you're really saved, or you better check out your behavior to make sure you're not continually sinning or habitually sinning because you might not go to heaven. No, no, it's all about the joy of our salvation and fellowship and so forth. And then he goes on to say, in fact, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This goes back to what I was saying earlier about forgiveness, that there is a positional forensic forgiveness that is once for all, that results in our perfect standing before a holy God. Uh, and then there is also practical forgiveness in the sense of restoring fellowship. When we confess, the Greek word confess there is homo legeo. It means to say the same thing as, to agree with God about is the idea. Uh, so yeah, I would just disagree strongly that 1 John 1, 9 is written about how to get saved or how to make sure you're really saved. It's not book, a book that gives us tests of life. It's a book that gives us tests of fellowship. Um, uh, here's a great question about uh, the mark of the beast and why the Bible says in Revelation 13 that those who take the mark will not go to heaven. And the, the question is, does the text give us any indication why this is the case? And some people are suggesting that if you take the mark of the beast during that tribulation period or those that are alive then at that time, if they were to take it, uh, that somehow... It, it's, uh, it's related to some type of injection that genetically changes them in such a way that they're incapable of making a choice. Yeah, I've heard that teaching a lot by some uh, of, of the more uh, you know, uh, sensationalist-type Bible prophecy teachers, and uh, I, I think it's an intriguing thought, but I, I don't think we need to go there because Revelation 13 and the discussion of the mark of the beast is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. And I've talked about this before, but it's not saying if you take the mark you will go to hell because you took the mark. It's just describing a future reality during the tribulation, according to which all unbelievers who end up in hell will take the mark, and all believers who end up in heaven will not take it. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. So, uh, during the tribulation period, uh, as the gospel is going forth uh, by the 144,000 witnesses, as well as by the two witnesses that are mentioned there in Revelation, as well as by ultimately the, the angel of God that goes around preaching the everlasting gospel, during that time, uh, you know, there will be uh, people that come to faith, and there will be people that reject the gospel and don't come to faith. Uh, no believer will take the mark. Now, that doesn't mean he goes to heaven because he didn't take the mark. He goes to heaven because he believed in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for his sins. Similarly, only unbelievers will take the mark. That does not mean they will go to hell because they took the mark. They're going to hell because they are un 
believers. So hopefully that helps uh, clarify that uh, question. Uh, let's see this next question, if I can kind of distill it down here. Um, again, another question about, uh, you know, preparedness for the future. This is one in particular about, you know, hey, if we grow our own garden and they're spraying harmful chemicals in the sky, uh, isn't that going to affect our crops? Well, frankly, yes, it will. Uh, but I, don't, I think we're a long way from, you know, instantly eating an ear of corn and dying because of, you know, what the geoengineers have done, uh, you know, to spray it in the sky. It's not healthy. It's harder and harder to find healthy crops these days, non-hybrid, non-GMO type crops, particularly non-GMO. I mean, there's hybrid crops are not a problem. We've been hybridizing crops for a while, kind with kind, but uh, when they start really messing with the genome a little bit, that's when we get into a problem. So yeah, I mean, I it's a problem. But I, again, I, I only want folks to think through what they can do things about. And, you know, I, there's really no way uh, to prevent that. I mean, theoretically, you can like we have in our preparedness stash, a couple of vaults of non-hybrid you know, uh, original seeds uh, that are completely unblemished. And we have them there because if the time ever comes when we need to grow food, we can create a shelter or some type of a, uh, you know, a uh, glass, uh, you know, house uh, where you can, uh, there's a word for that, but it escapes me at the moment. And everybody's screaming at their phones right now is telling me what that word is. But uh, uh, a greenhouse, that's the word I'm thinking of. Uh, you could do that, but the problem is the soil is already contaminated in most places. So unless you also saved some uncontaminated soil, it's, it's going to be an issue. So, But I don't think that's going to be the end of the world scenario. I don't think they're going to you know, you know, cause every single plant on earth to be inedible. So I just that's something that is a problem. You ought to give it some thought and not just you know indiscriminately eat everything you see. You ought to think through where it's been, what's the source of it. But I don't think that's something that uh, we should expend much energy worrying uh, about. So thanks for that question. Uh, here's a question about the rapture. Um, let's see. Uh, thank you for your wonderful program. Uh, Thank you, by the way. I didn't mean to read that out loud. I'm just trying to get to the question here. Uh, thank you for the encouragement, though. Um, when I think about the rapture, I think that the Lord loves human beings, His creation, and He's given everyone a chance to repent and come to the Lord. I feel that the Lord doesn't even know the day or the time of the rapture. He's waiting for things to get unbearable before He rescues the church. Well, uh, I remember flagging this question now because I wanted to comment Um you know, I, I certainly we know the Lord is uh, not willing that any should perish. I think that's the reason for his timetable is he's wanting to give people as long, as much time as possible to believe the gospel. But I wouldn't agree theologically with the statement that, uh, you know, the Lord doesn't even know the day. Now, Jesus said, nobody knows that they are there, only the Father in heaven. But remember, the hypostatic union, Jesus is fully God and fully man. So at times he chose to limit uh, Philippians 2 the kenosis, the emptying of himself. He, he willingly in his uh, you know, divinity chose to limit some of the things uh, therefore so that he could you know, function as a human being. And I think that's what's going on there in the Olivet Discourse when he said no man knows the day. Certainly today Jesus knows. Uh, that's my view. Um, so I do think God, the eternal Godhead knows. He's the ultimate arbiter of the timetable. There's nothing that he does not know. That's what the doctrine of omniscience is all about. So I wouldn't say that he doesn't know. that God never reacts to mankind. God's not sitting up there on the edge of his seat watching what's going on on earth. And when he says, okay, finally enough's enough. That's it. I'm, I'm calling you home. 
That's not the way God operates. He is sovereign. He knows all, sees all, and has planned all. But from a human perspective, and this again goes back to that tension, that antinomy between sovereignty and free will, uh, I believe uh, you know God is wanting to give as much time as possible for people to come to faith. So thanks for that comment there. Um, this person, uh, I love this succinct question. Uh, thank you for this. A friend who believes Jesus died for her sins, also believes in purgatory, prays to Mary, and believes in the Catholic Church doctrine. Is she saved? Very to the point and succinct. Uh, unfortunately, I can't give you a direct answer. And let me explain why before people get mad at me here. Uh, obviously, if a person has believed in Jesus Christ and Him alone, and that's the only thing they've ever placed their faith in for eternal life, they're saved. We can say that unequivocally based on the clear teaching of Scripture. Uh, if if they have never believed only that, but have always held that in order to get to heaven you have to believe in Jesus and do X, Y, Z, well then they have denied the exclusivity of Christ, and, and Jesus himself said he's the only way, uh, and therefore since they've never believed only in Jesus, they're not saved. We can say that on the authority of Scripture. It's faith alone in Christ alone. Faith alone in Christ alone, not faith plus these other things. So, um, you know, it, it's uh, if you if you and I make this uh, point in my getting the gospel wrong book. If you were to use a mathematical equation, if we say, you know, x equals faith, or x equals faith in Christ, and you know you have to believe x to be saved, uh, or and let's just say x is the content of saving faith. You have to believe x to be saved. If a person believes x plus one, they're not saved because x cannot equal x plus 1, even in the new math of, of today. Uh, so, or maybe it can in the new math of today, who knows. But x is the gospel. And so the gospel is very clear in Scripture. Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead. So if this person has always and only believed that it's faith in Jesus plus the seven sacraments of Catholicism, plus you know this and that and the other, then they're not saved. But if at some point in their journey they came to recognize that only Jesus can save them and they placed their faith solely in Jesus Christ uh, and nothing else and they trusted him, then they're saved. And even if they subsequently fall back into some of the trappings of false doctrine within, the Catholic, within Catholicism, it doesn't undo what happened the moment they believed the gospel. And there's a parallel in the early church that Paul addresses in Galatians where people had lined up to receive salvation by trusting in Christ during Paul's first missionary journey when he and Barnabas visited the region of southern Galatia, uh, the cities of, of Lystra, Derby, Iconium, and others. Uh, uh, and uh, they were saved, no question about it. But shortly thereafter, they began being falsely influenced and taught incorrectly by some Judaizers who suggested that they need to be circumcised, they need to keep the law, they need to do all these other legalistic things. And that didn't mean they weren't saved, it just means they were wrong. And so this person that you ask about who's a Catholic, if she's ever believed only in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only one who can save her, rejecting her faith in anything else, then she's saved. If she's never believed that, if all she's ever believed is that you know, the salvation equation involves a variety of things, one of which is faith in Christ, but it also includes mariolatry and the sacramentalism and those types of things, then I can say that she's not saved. So hopefully that helps. Um, okay, here is a question about uh, the 24 elders uh, in uh, the book of Revelation. So there's no question in my mind who uh, these are, and these are we're talking here about 
Revelation chapter 4 uh, and verse 4. Yes, uh, this is part of that section in Revelation that describes the scene in heaven just before the start of the tribulation when the first seal is opened and the Antichrist is revealed. Um, Around the throne were 24 uh, thrones and on those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes that they had and they had crowns of gold on their head. So uh, really a fascinating passage. Uh, generally speaking, there's two views are these humans or all, are these angels? I think we can pretty soundly reject the notion that these are uh, angels. Um, because, first of all, angels, whoever these people are, they've already been judged. They've already received their crowns, their rewards. And angels are not judged until Christ comes back. Well, he doesn't come back to the end of the tribulation. This is before the tribulation or at the beginning of uh, the tribulation. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, also in in the context, if you read on in chapter 5, these 24 elders, let's see... Uh, yeah, chapter 5, verse 8, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down the Lord and worshiped him and saying, you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Well, angels are not redeemable creatures. Um, Jesus didn't die so that angels could believe in him and have eternal life. Um, so I think there's several indications here that this is not talking about angels, but human beings. As to who they are, my view is that it always refers to the church for a lot of the same reasons, because the church has been raptured by this point, already received their crowns and their rewards at the Bema judgment. Uh, Old Testament saints don't get resurrected and rewarded until the end of the tribulation, Daniel 12, 2. So again, this is before the tribulation. So I think the best evidence here is that this is talking about representatives from within the church. Uh, I do take it literally. I think it's 24, you know, literal uh, people that are uh, representing the church here. Uh, but I definitely think it's church age uh, believers in the context there. So thanks for that question. Um, how do we resist the monetary system that is being put into place when all we have goes... Uh, you know, uh, into our shelter and food. Um, yeah, the same question that we get a lot, and I, I really appreciate this question. I never get tired of answering it because I know it goes right to the heart of people's concerns. Um, again, I would say, as I mentioned earlier, you know, don't worry about what you can't, you know, what you have no control over. Worry about what you have control over, right? And so uh, at the, when the point comes where you know you're not going to have access to your funds anymore whether that's a retirement fund or government issued handout uh, or you know subsidy of some kind uh, make sure you have enough on hand to you know provide for yourself and that's not impossible to do in fact it's becoming easier and easier so focus your attention in the purchases you make on purchasing food and things that will last a long time and I believe there will be a window of time when we are, if the Lord doesn't come back before then, when we are sequestered in our homes and having to kind of live off what we have. But I, I think for most people, if you're well prepared, if the Lord hasn't come back, we will come out the other side and we will, you know, we will have some way of kind of restarting. This We've seen this time and again through human history. You know, it was the Jews that saw the Holocaust coming, that hid out and survived and managed to continue on their family history after it was all the horrific things that happened uh, happened then. So 
uh, yeah, you know, prepare. And as this person rightly said, we trust in the Lord every day to give wisdom. That's absolutely. Remember, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. So preparedness and faith are not mutually exclusive. They go hand uh, in hand. Um, this is a general question. I don't think I can take the time to really answer it in great detail, but I appreciated the question. They uh, said that they booked their trip to Norman and are looking forward to the Prophecy Watchers Conference there, and I hope they come by and say hello. Any of you that are at that conference, uh, come by and say hello. By the way, if you go to our Not By Works website and click on the Events tab, you can see some of the upcoming conferences. We also mention them in the Highlight Carousel. Uh, but we do have some conferences coming up in uh, September. I'll be in Fort Collins at a uh, prophecy conference there with uh, Bill Salas, Randall Price, and others. I'm speaking three times at that one in October. Of course, there's Prophecy Watchers in Norman, Oklahoma, speaking twice there. I've got another conference the following weekend in October in Texas. Everyone's invited uh, to that. That's at a large church in East Texas near Tyler. All the details are on the website. Uh, in uh, November, I'm actually teaching uh, a one-week course at a school down in uh, Beaumont, uh, so that's not really a conference. In December, I'll be speaking at Pre-Trib. Uh, looking ahead to next year, I'll be in uh, January, February, I'll be in uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana. Then I'll be in Orlando for the Prophecy Watchers Conference again, and uh, in Claremont, Florida for speaking at Liberty Baptist. Lots of great stuff coming up over the next uh, six months. You can check that out. But anyway, this person asks about the rapture and that, you know, they have not really been taught it. They, they've been influenced by 50 years of being in the United Methodist Church, and they still have trouble understanding the, the rapture question. Well, uh, I totally appreciate that, especially if you haven't been taught. Um, I would encourage you to just, first of all, start with the Word of God. And they mention that. They mention that they're reading 1 Thessalonians 4. They understand being caught up in the clouds. But the timing of it all is what they're struggling with. Well, I believe if you stay true to the Word, let the Bible speak for itself, it will resolve itself. But I do have some good supplemental recommendations besides our resources. Uh, in my book, What Lies Ahead, I have a, a whole chapter on the timing of the rapture in which I refute <coughs> refute the non-pre-tribulational view and defend the pre-tribulational view. Um, but uh, you use the phrase, the rapture question. Well, there's a book by that title by Dr. John Walvard, the late Dr. John Walvard, uh, who died about uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, I recommend that book. He details our biblical understanding of the doctrine uh, of the rapture. Uh, this person also asked about another uh, scholar, and uh, I knew this man. He's died recently, sadly, uh, died young, uh, younger than he should have anyway, uh, and that's uh, Dr. Mike Heiser. And because I do get a lot of questions about him, I wanted to take the moment to you know, address some of my concerns about him. Uh, now, uh, let me preface this by saying, again, I knew uh, Mike worked with him on a few occasions. I love him. He was a nice guy, very uh, intriguing views on some things. Um, and uh, so, you know, uh, not meaning to be personal, uh, especially since he's with the Lord now. But because of his influence, I, I want to caution people about some of the things that he taught. So let me just mention briefly, and then you can check this out. And by the way, this comes from a good friend of mine, and I, who dialogued about uh, Dr. Mike Heiser and some of our concerns about that, uh, and I appreciate his help in thinking through some of these things. But number one, again, these are concerns that I have about Mike Heiser that this listener has asked about him. 
Uh, Mike Heiser agrees that we're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ apart from works, but he still concludes that Christians must continue in loyal faith if you really want to go to heaven. Well, you can understand why I would uh, reject that, and, and we believe very strongly and clearly that the Bible does not teach that. So that's always my number one question is, where does this person stand on the gospel? Another concern is uh, in Genesis 1.26, when God said, let us make man in our image, Heiser does not believe that the us there refers to the triune Godhead. Instead, he thinks it refers to the divine counsel. And if you've read much of his work, uh, not just his fiction books, uh, which are you know very interesting and well-written, uh, but some of his you know more academic work and journal articles and things like that, you know that his the divine counsel is sort of a central interpretive motif of what he writes about. But I, I, that's a strong departure from orthodoxy and the plain normal reading of uh, the text. The Bible never says that man is made in the image of angels. You know, the divine council in, 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 in Heiser's view is, you know, this group of people that in, included angels and that God had these meetings in heaven and was orchestrating the creation and so forth. But that's not at all what Genesis 1.26 is saying. And it has pretty grave implications to think that somehow we're made in the image of angels, which, of course, we're not. Uh, he also believes that the word day in the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2 is not a literal... Uh, uh, 24-hour day, so that's a major problem that I have with his teaching. Uh, I believe it clearly is. Um, he also rejects the global flood. I disagree with that. Uh, he also believes that the first 11 chapters of Genesis were not written by Moses, but were written, you know, some thousand years or so later uh, during the Babylonian exile, uh, which is a real a problem, and it, it's basically the liberal view uh, of higher criticism. So I completely disagree with uh, that. Uh, he also, in essence, denies inerrancy, you know, saying that uh, the Bible uh, was written, in particular Genesis and Daniel were written without regard to scientific accuracy, you know, that the Bible could make scientifically inaccurate statements in order to make spiritual points, but that fundamentally denies the doctrine of inerrancy. That's a problem for me. Um, uh, let's see, he says uh, he has a lot to say about the book of First Enoch, which I, I love that book. It's a great book, but he says he doesn't care if it's canonical or not, if it's inspired by God or not, but that's a major problem. I do care, and I emphatically say it wasn't. It's a historical book. It's got some interesting data, but it is not on par with Scripture, and that does matter to me, and I believe it should have mattered uh, to Dr. Heiser. Um, and uh, then uh, Dr. Heiser, again, going back to the divine council, he takes passages like Psalm 82 as referring to the divine council when I think the plain normal reading of the text, especially when you get down to verses 6 and 7, uh, is that this is talking about human, divine, uh, human kings in Israel, unjust uh, human judges that, that are being uh, addressed here. I mean, it, it, they, it talks about them... Uh, you know, in, you know, judging properly on behalf of the poor and the needy and the widows and the orphans. And that, that word in, in Psalm 82, verse 1, Elohim, does not always uh, refer only to, you know, God. It's, it's the formal name for God. It's the word that's used in Genesis 1-1. But there are plenty of places where it, it, it just refers to strong ones or human rulers or human authorities. For example, Exodus 21-6 and Exodus 22 eight and nine use it that way. And that's the way it's being used in Psalm 82. So it does not support Dr. Heiser's uh, view 
that he held that this is some kind of divine council. I have no problem understanding that there are different angelic celestial beings that are that have their own hierarchy, both you know evil ones and godly ones. But to suggest that somehow they form a rule by committee with God is a real uh, problem and does not uh, comport with Scripture. Um, it's also obviously along these same lines very difficult to repeatedly you know hear dr heiser in his writings talk about how demons are part of the divine council i mean that's just not i mean the word divine by definition means god you know uh, god himself and, and so demons certainly are not on par with it so i would just be very careful folks about some of his writings i appreciate uh his writings in in the sense that they opened up a lot of people's eyes to the unseen realm that's the title of one of his books um again i knew him we've had some great discussions i agreed with a lot of what he said but you know you need to be discerning and compare what he says to scripture because there are some you know pretty serious red flags uh there in that regard I think we'll stop there for today. I've got a few more. I was hoping to get to a few more here, but uh, that's okay. We will we've more to come, and I'm sure more questions will come in. But thanks so much uh, for listening to this episode of Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions. This was episode four. Uh, tune in tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow morning, I've got David Fiorazzo on. That'll be posted midday or so. And then, of course, tomorrow night prophecy night so if you're in the denver metro area come out in person at uh, six o'clock mountain time otherwise you can live stream at notbyworks.org thank you so much for listening god bless you everyone